Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 1, Geography and Historical Background. Welcome to the first real episode of the Bulgarian History Podcast. I'm Eric Halsey, and today we're going to be discussing the geography of the region, as well as the general historical context of the creation of the first Bulgarian state in 681. Now, bear in mind, this episode is going to be quite different from all the later episodes in the series. It's not really chronological, it's just setting the stage. So, if that's not your style and you don't want to hear so much about the geography, feel free to just skip on and jump into the regular narrative. So to begin, let's take a look at the Balkan Peninsula. Now for reference, I suggest you check out the maps provided on the website. So the peninsula is bounded by the Adriatic Sea, the Black Sea, the Aegean Sea, and the rest of the Mediterranean. Now while these boundaries are not really contested, the northern boundary of the Balkan Peninsula is a very contentious issue. While some say it extends as far north as Budapest, others say it stops at Belgrade. Some include Romania, some exclude it. Now, in my opinion, the crux of the issue lies on whether you're defining the Balkans in political, social, cultural, or geographic terms, and additionally, in what time period. But suffice to say, it's a variable and loaded concept whose meanings and prejudices will be discussed later in the podcast. Now, if you want to hear a bit more about it, I'd highly suggest Maria Todorova's excellent book, Imagining the Balkans. It's a bit academic, but it's still a good read if you ask me. Now, For the moment, aside from the general question of what is the Balkan Peninsula, let's talk about what's inside of it. Now, it's generally very mountainous and wooded, with few navigable rivers aside from the Danube. The term Balkan itself is thought to derive from a Turkish word, meaning a chain of wooded mountains. Having traveled the peninsula very extensively, I couldn't put it any better myself. Now, what this means is that While historically, trading centers have developed all along the vast coastline of the peninsula, the interior is often isolated even just a few kilometers from the coast, particularly on the Adriatic coastline. Visit Bosnia, Croatia, or Montenegro today, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. A series of isolated valleys and a jarring coastline where mountains rise up almost straight out of the sea. It's really an incredible place. So minor travel note, if you can ever visit these places, you really should. They're just stunning, but not so great if you're a trader in the Middle Ages or the ancient period. So this has led to that coastline being, for example, a haven for pirates. And for places like Montenegro and northern Albania, being almost impossible to submit to central authority for centuries. In Greece, this is also true, where we've seen historically a lot of city-states instead of a single centralized state because of the geography, where the geography just at times makes it too difficult to exert central control without a really, really strong central force, a really strong kind of imperial force most of the time. Now, the Black Sea coastline is a bit different. It's much more like a typical coastline if such a thing exists. But once you get to the Danube Delta farther north, where the river empties into the Black Sea, and then you'll see suddenly the coastline shifts to a vast maze of lakes, streams, marshes, and channels. Now, the climate on the Adriatic and Aegean coasts is just Mediterranean, simple as that. 
while on the Black Sea coast, it's more humid subtropical. Inland, the climate gets to humid continental, like where I am in Sofia right now. Now, many areas have cold winters and hot, dry summers owing to the mountains, while the south and coastlines often have a more mild climate, as I just implied. The soil is often quite poor, suitable mostly for tough plants like olive trees and grapevines. The plains, and on the other, can be on the other hand, can be quite fertile. But as I mentioned, the difficult terrain can make it tough to transport the food you've grown there, and thereby support large urban centers. Okay, so that was an overview of the geography of the peninsula. Now, for a more in-depth look at the geography of the territory which makes up Bulgaria today, now, Bulgaria itself has a number of mountain ranges. The most prominent is the Balkan mountain range, known in Bulgaria as the Staroplanina, meaning the old mountain. Now this range extends from Serbia in the west all the way more or less to the Black Sea. And these mountains will form a very important barrier throughout Bulgarian history. And it'll be the, they'll be the site of countless important battles. Now they separate the Danubian plain in the north from the southern portions of Bulgaria. So, the next set of mountains, my personal favorite, are the Rila Mountains. These mountains constitute a relatively compact cluster, and what can be seen is maybe around the center of the entire Balkan Peninsula. They also contain the highest peak on the peninsula, and in fact, the highest peak between the Alps and the Caucasus, so basically all of Eastern Europe. This is Mount Musala, which reaches 2,925 meters, or for you Americans, 9,596 feet. Now, these vast and often remote mountains will return again and again as places to hide from the authorities or simply escape from the rest of the world. Similarly, just below the Rila Mountains, you'll find the Piran Mountains. They're similar both in the sense of their height and kind of their historical role. Next to the east, you'll see the Rodopi Mountains. Now, these vast, sprawling, and relatively low mountains extend down into Greece into the Aegean Sea. Finally, you have the small and really t relatively less known Stranja Mountains along the modern border with Turkey in the southeast of Bulgaria. There are also several important plains and plateaus. The largest is the Danubian Plain, which follows the Danube River from its emergence from the Iron Gates, uh, formerly constituting a kind of barrier of rapids, which prevented any river traffic from, from progressing beyond that point. And the plain sort of follows the Danube up to the Black Sea. Its agriculture is going to play a hugely important role in Bulgarian history, and it's also a beautiful place to visit. Now, the Danube itself is, of course, also a vitally important place for trade and as a natural border. In both these respects, it's going to play prominently in the history of Bulgaria. Now, separated from the Danubian Plain by the Balkan Mountains, you have to the south the Thracian Plain, which extends from central Bulgaria all the way more or less down to Istanbul itself. The flatlands and rolling hills of this plain have hosted numerous armies and battles, as well as endearing the area to many horse tribes that we'll talk about as we go through the history. Included in this plain is the Sofia Basin, a plateau of sorts, which includes the city of Sofia, where I am now. Now, this plain's shape and the ease of traveling through it has led to it being a vital trade route from Western Europe down to Istanbul or Constantinople at various times in the Middle Age, from the Middle Ages since ancient times. Now, Bulgaria has also has an abundance of hot springs, a quality of which has made the area popular throughout the centuries. 
So what about the settlements in the region? Who's living here? Where are they living? The major settlements in the region at the time of the arrival of the Slavic and Proto-Bulgarian tribes, when Bulgarian history proper begins, were of course Constantinople, modern Istanbul in the extreme southeast, Odessos, modern Varna, on a bay along the Black Sea coast to the east of the peninsula, Adrianople, modern Etirne, in the Thracian plain, Trimontium, now also known at the time as Philippopolis, which is modern-day Plovdiv, set in the plain between the Rodopi and, Bla- and Balkan mountains, Salonika, modern Thessaloniki, on the North Aegean and the second city of the Byzantine Empire at this time, Serdica, modern Sofia, in the center of the peninsula, Nysus, modern Niche, in the north-central part of the peninsula, and Singidunum, modern Belgrade, at the confluence of the Danube and Sava rivers, at the point where the mountains of the Balkans sort of transition into the Carpathian Basin. And finally, Athens, in the south in Greece. So, you'll notice that the population centers were generally found on rivers, the sea, or in a plain. So, the mountainous West Balkans, for example, didn't really contain any major population centers, and today, even today, don't really have any cities above a million people. So, again, you can see here how geography, you know, just in the same way it sort of set Balkan history and what was happening there in the 7th century, it sets it in the same way now in the 21st century. Okay, so that about wraps up the important notes on geography. So now I'll just have some talk about the historical circumstances of the early Middle Ages. Now, the Europe into which the Slavic and Proto-Bulgarian tribes settled in the 5th and 7th centuries, respectively, was fluid. It was chaotic. Now, without getting into a debate on periodization, you could say that the classical era, as we think of it, was shifting into the early Middle Ages. Now, aside from the uh, deposition of the last Roman emperor in the West in 476, the population of the regions of the Western Roman Empire had declined 20% from the year 400 to the year 600. So again, as these tribes are coming in, what's happening in the West? The empire has fallen, population is going down, trade is declining, trade is reaching the lowest levels since the Bronze Age, I mean, the lowest levels in over a thousand years. Cities were depopulating. Agriculture was declining as the large-scale slave-based Latifunda system gave way to subsistence agriculture, and slaves took advantage of collapsing central authority to just run away. The larger economies had trade links which had brought unimaginable wealth to the classical world of the Romans were breaking apart, and feudalism was taking hold. Now one can imagine, as a a bit of a thought experiment, A town, which was famous for its, say, textile production, suddenly having its trade links cut off by an army and the ensuing political chaos. Such manufacturing would utterly collapse, and the nature of that town's economy and society would collapse with it. Or you could imagine if you were shipping by sea, if you were some trading center, and suddenly that shipping went reduced by, say, 90%. Now, if this was in today's world, the results would be immediate and catastrophic. So I think these are kind of useful analogies to this period, to think of it as something akin to the modern world with its elaborate trade networks. And what would happen if suddenly those networks were rendered almost useless? These kind of breaks are exponential in nature, leading not to a gradual decline in trade or gradual declines in production, but often near collapses of it. Freedom of movement was also lessening 
as tribes, especially Germanic ones, were moving throughout the empire, the former empire, with increasing impunity. In essence, travel became more difficult for the unarmed and more easy for the armed. At the same time, it's important to note that the vast majority of the so-called barbarian tribes that uh, invaded around the end of the Roman Empire were actually not gangs of brutes just trying to steal anything not nailed down. They wanted to be part of the Roman Empire. They wanted a part of the very wealth that their incursions was disrupting. Often these tribes would move because they were pushed off their lands by another group or even by environmental changes. So just getting your mind around, what's this world like? It's not just these brutes coming in and stealing everything. It's, it's huge groups of people. And these are people who are being forced by circumstances to change everything about their lives and that these huge changes are utterly tearing down all the structures that had held up the ancient world. So what ultimately drove these people, in fact, was the same thing which drove the populations of those Romanized cities themselves, the simple desire for a better life. Now, to make a broader point about history, human beings are just human beings, no matter where they are. It's always important to avoid the urge to kind of dehumanize historical actors, not only because it's wrong, but because it restricts our ability to properly understand their motivations and actions. So during the 6th century, the Byzantine Empire under Justinian had managed to reconquer Italy, North Africa, parts of Spain, several Mediterranean islands, and the Adriatic coastline. But these gains were a bit misleading, because in many ways they reflected Justinian's misguided focus on expansion, when in fact consolidation would have been the wiser path for the Byzantine Empire. Additionally, his reign saw advances, like the codification of Roman law, along with further setbacks like the plague of Justinian, which saw significant declines in the Byzantine population. Now, the Slavic and Avar invasions, these migratory peoples, also decimated the population of the Balkans, while the capital was forced to face several sieges. Advances were followed by setbacks as the empire won a major victory against the Persians before losing its Middle Eastern provinces to Muslim armies. At the same time, Religious divisions distracted the emperor and empire alike, as, for example, Justinian spent countless hours attempting to devise a solution which would bring together the disparate factions within his Christian flock. While Constantinople would remain unconquered for centuries to come, the Byzantine Empire, the last vestige of the Roman Empire, was experiencing what is often viewed as a golden age, the age of Justinian, but which truly revealed its inner weaknesses and divisions. The trade between the West and the East, which the Eastern portion of the Roman Empire had utilized for centuries to create immense wealth, was no longer in their hands. So while things continued, the underlying wealth creation structures of the new Byzantine Empire were evaporating. The 6th century for Byzantium was therefore in many ways a lot of style and less substance. Conquest for the sake of conquest, but not for the sake of creating a foundation for a truly revitalized and reborn Roman Empire. So, I can't ignore the importance of Justinian's law code, which would serve as a basis for many a medieval law code. But still, law codes do not stable empires make. By the beginning of the 7th century, Byzantium was in fact reduced to a sliver of North Africa, Egypt, a few Mediterranean islands, the southern Balkans, Anatolia, and the eastern Mediterranean shore. The Avar Khanate had settled on the other side of the Danube, 
The Frankish Empire stretched from Germany to France, the Visigoths controlled nearly all of Spain, and the Angles and Saxons had moved into southern Denmark and western Britain. The boundaries of these new states were generally very fluid and malleable, as they expanded and contracted, all creating an instability that, while preferable to having tribes marching around unchecked, was still a marked departure from the stability that the last few centuries of Roman rule had offered. So despite occasional victories like those against the Sassanid Persians in the early 7th century, the Byzantines were feeling squeezed between the Slavs, Bulgars, Avars in the Balkans, and the explosive conquests of Islam in the Middle East and Anatolia. Of course, during the early 7th century, the rise of Islam was another defining event. By 632, virtually the entire Arabian Peninsula was conquered. Under the Rashidun Caliphate, from 632 to 661, the conquests expanded deep into Byzantine territory before conquering virtually the entire area between Spain and Pakistan by the early 8th century. From the mid-7th century, the Khazars, a Turkic people, dominated the north the steppes north of the Caucasus between the Volga and the Don rivers, taking tribute from the Slavs, Alani, and Magyars. They dominated east-west trade and spread in a northerly route and constituted an important buffer between the spread of Islam through the Caucasus mountains. So, taking the Balkans as a center, what do we see around it? We see Byzantium to the south and southeast, with the Arabs beyond them. To the north and northeast, we have the Alani, the Magyars, and the Khazars, three horse tribes, taking advantage of the early steppe country as you move east. To the northwest, a vast and young Frankish empire. This is the world into which the Slavs and Bulgars each migrated. While so many institutions and populations were in decline, this also meant that opportunities for newcomers to make something of themselves were rife. The right tribe taking advantage of the political and economic circumstances of the declining empires, could experience amazing growth, something proven by groups like the Franks and eventually the Ottomans. It's important not to take all this talk of decline and sort of forget that at this point, Constantinople is still the wealthiest city in the world, and its magnetic attraction is difficult to even understand today. In this period, from Scandinavia to Arabia, from Spain to Iran, when one spoke of the city, there is only one place to which you could be referring, Constantinople. Being the neighbor of this city could be immensely rewarding and occasionally dangerous. There was much wealth to be traded and stolen as well as armies to defeat. For the Slavs and the Bulgars did not simply step into the chaotic cauldron of Europe, they stepped into the neighborhood of Constantinople. And it would be the rulers of this city which would come to define the history of these newcomers for centuries. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Lance Nelson, and the theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. The story is written by me, Eric Halsey. Be sure to like us on Facebook and leave us a review on iTunes. Also, you can now listen to us directly on SoundCloud. Feel free to donate with the PayPal button on the website if you're feeling generous. Lastly, if you'd like to hear more about Bulgaria today, check out the Bulgarian Now podcast created by Lance Nelson and myself. You can even hear me give an audio tour of Sofia and just generally discuss what it's like living in Bulgaria today. Lastly, I made a special three-part series on the history of Bonsko in the premium version of the Bonsko app, also created by Lance Nelson. So if you want to give that a listen, buy the app in the App Store and 
check it out. So in the meantime, uspech, or in English, good luck. <laughs>